2: Go behind the scenes and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Alienware.
0: alienware.com slash deals that's alienware.com slash deals tax
1: season is approaching bringing potential extra cash your way
2: rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan consider switching to metro by t-mobile from no contracts no credit checks no surprises and Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. Our good friend and compatriot Matt Frederick is on adventures today. But we will have someone filling in, you could say... They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You To Know a very trippy episode.
0: This episode is a trippy treat. And it is something that's been a long time in the works because we've talked, we've danced around this subject mm-hmm. for years back as far as the videos.
2: I don't know if we danced around is no. fair. Matt and I did danced this. On like on it. Yeah. Time. yeah. No, and
0: that's why I was such a bummer that Matt couldn't be here today because mm-hmm. this is something that's very near and dear to him. So I hope we did him proud with what you're about to hear.
2: Oh, yes, yes. We um, we are joined today uh, by a very special guest, the physicist, parapsychologist, and pioneer in the field of remote viewing, Russell Targ. And Russell Targ has been instrumental in... Uh, in the way that we, not just as people, but as governments understand the phenomenon they call remote viewing, right? He's uh, perhaps best known in in terms of this work uh, for his time with Stanford Research Institute.
0: Which I believe was endowed by Stanford University and then spun off into a completely independent entity in the early 70s. Targ got his start in the hard science of lasers and then parlayed that fascination with research and optics and Honestly, it was an experiential thing for him to start because of his difficulties with his own vision. And he sort of took that uh, and turned it into this pursuit, lifelong mm-hmm. pursuit of being able to project yourself out of yourself and being able to teach people how to do this. And this is not a conspiracy theory. Dare we say there's aspects of this that isn't a conspiracy at all. This is has been declassified, was a thing the CIA mm-hmm. participated in and funded actively.
2: Longtime listeners, you will be familiar with many of the players involved and certainly a lot of the phenomena involved. Uh, but today we are going directly to the source. We recently had a chance to sit down with Russell Targ ourselves. Well, sit down in the podcast sense uh, and get a firsthand description of the evolution of SRI, the nuts and bolts of remote viewing research, and possibly a look into the future, although we say there's not much of a difference.
0: And uh, Russell Targ was also instrumental in the production of a film that is out now called Third Eye Spies that goes into the history of his work with the CIA, some mysteries along the way that are almost outside of the scope of this conversation. But I
2: think you'll see them in future episodes mm. and more and so without further ado, Russell Targ, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show with us today. I believe one of our, the first questions that our audience will have uh, will be a biographical or personal question. Uh, you are a renowned physicist, a parapsychologist, and an author, and originally you uh, you worked specifically with applications for laser technology. To our audience, uh, the, the idea of working in that field and the idea of exploring what we would today call ESP or remote viewing, uh, they, they seem like, uh, at first glance, two very, very different things. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired your exploration and experimentation with remote viewing?
4: In the beginning, I was a very visually defective person. My vision has lifelong been terrible. So I was always doing things that could improve my vision, and I got very interested in optics, which is a natural thing for a visually handicapped person to do. So through that, I became what we could call a pioneer in the development of the laser. I was working on lasers before there were any lasers. So I pursued that experiments with lasers, laser communication, and I wound up building a ultra high power laser, but all my life I was aware that psychic abilities were present. Because uh, as a kid I was interested in magic and did pretend magic on the stage and what every magician will tell you, I've talked to Melbourne Christopher and the great Kreskin, and they said, Oh yes, when we're on the stage with the lights in our eyes, we get to supplement our act with whatever ESP comes our way. And I had that experience also. So I had the idea while I was doing laser work that one of these days I would make a transition into ESP work because I I was confident that I could teach people how to get in touch with their psychic abilities. So in 1972... My laser customer invited me to a conference on speculative technology off the shore of Virginia, and at that meeting, I had a serendipitous run-in with Werner von Braun, Jim Fletcher, who's the administrator of all of NASA, and Edgar Mitchell, who's the astronaut who just came to Earth, and together with my three new friends we outlined what a program investigating psychic abilities would be, and I took that to Stanford Research Institute. So my first doe for ESP research was to build an ESP teaching machine, and it just happens that that machine I built is now available as a free application called ESP Trainer uh, for your iPhone so i got in I got in business investigating psychic abilities through my earlier development of an ESP teaching machine. And together with support of NASA and also the CIA, we were often running at Stanford because i I had dealt, built laser stuff for the CIA as well. So I had some credentials with NASA and with the CIA, so I could propose this far out seeming program, and they knew that I was a scientist who was already able to do hard stuff and make it work. So they gave us a small amount of money to start a program at Stanford Research Institute.
0: But so I have a question. So for something like um, ESP that even today sort of exists for many in the speculative realm, where it's it's difficult to prove. How do you take something like that, especially when it involves funding and research dollars, and eventually government? Um, and how do you prove something that to many people is is looked at as pseudoscience or as you know the supernatural?
4: Well, there's several ways to do that. One of the ways I had, I've written quite a number of books describing how ESP works, uh, what the theory might be, how you can learn to do it. And, of course, that's not very efficacious. So I decided five years ago uh, to create a film making use of all the previously top-secret material we had. So I made a film called Third Eye Spies, which shows people doing psychic abilities, looking for Soviet weapons factories, missing hostages, Russian uh, uh, submarines. And the thing that makes our film unique, makes it an event, is that we have on camera the CIA contract monitors who oversaw our program. So we have a senior CIA scientist, Ken Kress, who is a lifelong physicist, and Kit Green, who is the director of the life science division at the CIA. And these two distinguished elder CIA operatives are on camera saying, yes, we were polygraphed, and we worked with Targ, and what he says in this film is true. It really happened. So unlike other films talking about ESP, where you have the uh, researchers or the psychics, here we have the guys who paid for it. And as you know, the CIA is not easily amused. <laughs> and, and we have these two distinguished CIA operators on camera looking into the camera and said, it might be hard to believe, but we were there and it really happened. So that's one, that's one way, uh, endeavor to convince people that ESP is real. The other way uh, is to show them how to do it. So very often, uh, we were trying to get money from the government to do different kinds of things, and a government scientist will come to our laboratory and say, "Well, we will show. Can you show me what you guys are doing?" In one instance like this, we had a visit from the Undersecretary of Defense, Walter LaBerge, who is a uh, second to. The Secretary of Defense at that time, LeBege, came in his helicopter clearing our parking lot. And he said, okay, can you show me something psychic? We've been supporting you now. How does this work? And I said, certainly I can, sir. Uh, I'll just show you how to do it, which is what I do. People come to the lab. They want to learn how to do ESP. And I show them how to do remote viewing. So I said, the way we do this is your adjutant will go hide someplace with my partner, Hal Putoff. or go to some random location in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's the target. They've gone some mystery spot, and I will sit with you, sir, and I, of course, have no idea where they've gone, but I will show you the moves to quiet your mind and look for surprising images to pop into your awareness, and then you will make a drawing of those surprising images, and that's what we do. So he said, okay, I, if, if you tell me what to do, then I can do that. He's a very senior scientist accustomed to being successful, and I said, all right, uh, they're at their place now. Start drawing. and You see, you can't be wrong, Dr. LeBerge, because only you know what your images are. And I just want you to make a drawing of what shows up in your awareness that's surprising. And he drew a kind of brick courtyard, circular courtyard with a circular fountain in the middle, all bricks all the way around, all bricks, so forth, with fountain. And he said, that's all I got, these circular arrays of tiers of bricks. I said, well, that's fine. That's pretty surprising. And they came back, and then... The four of us, bear and me, and the two travelers went to the place, which was an art center quite a distance from SRI, and he got to see in real life what he had drawn. And he said, well, that's pretty impressive And I didn't even believe in this stuff. So what we know is that remote viewing is an ability we all have to quiet our minds and describe and experience what's going on in a distant location. And people can have that experience and learn to quiet their minds and learn to do that. And one of the most interesting things I know is that remote viewing is a non-local ability. Like much in modern science, non-locality is a very hot topic pertaining particularly to when, when photons or electrons are separated at birth, they remain attached. So if you grab one of the twins, the other one squeals even though they're separated by the whole universe. So the idea of non-locality, independent of space and time, is quite current in modern physics. It's not, it's not an occult idea anymore. The Buddhists, of course, said there's no separation in consciousness, and they said that 2,500 years ago. Uh, but we would much rather believe and experiment with twin photons than anything that appeared in the Prajna 2,500 years ago. But the other thing I can tell you which is the most interesting thing I know and what floats my boat these days is that it's no harder to describe something that happens in the future, days or weeks in the future than it is to describe a hidden contemporaneous thing. Hmm. So the future and the distance are both available to the quiet mind. And this non-local ability to know the future and know the distance is what we call remote viewing.
2: When we're talking about uh, this this sort of process uh, entanglement may sound strange but entanglement is proven and this gets us into well some of the history of the involvement of the of the CIA and other scientists not just in the. US but around the world uh, one one thing that we picked up here, I'll when we were watching Third Eye Spies and then also when we were looking in some uh, some earlier stories of your work, uh, we found that a lot of this research occurred within the cultural context of the Cold War. And uh, what, one of the most popular frames of thought, at least on the U.S. government side, was that the Soviet Union was not just interested in similar research— but had already been conducting experiments. Is that correct?
0: And was potentially actively using it against us to spy on us. It's, it strikes me as almost like a space race kind of situation mm-hmm. only in the psychic realm.
2: Yeah. Would you Would you say that's correct?
4: Yeah. The American book by Ostrander and Schroeder, they, these two journalists wrote a book in 1970 called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. And they revealed a lot of the work that was going on in the Soviet Union. This is non-classified work, of course, but one of the experiments that we can verify, because we know one of the participants now, Larissa Volenskaya, who is a Russian physicist who eventually worked with us, uh, was present when they did a long-distance strangulation experiment, where one fellow was in Moscow, and his best friend was in Leningrad, hooked up to biotechnology uh, so that when Lev in Moscow was told, now try and get the attention of your friend in the lab in Leningrad, he said, well, one way to get his attention is to strangle him. Yikes. now this is, this is Russian thinking, of course. <laughs> and they carried out, Larissa was with the guy in Moscow, and she said they carried out the experiment until the guy in Leningrad fell off his chair uh, um, at near death.
2: Mm-hmm. And didn't he also lose consciousness at some point?
4: Yes, he, he, he did. He, uh, was, was almost, he was near death. It was almost the end of his life. And so the difference between the Russian experiments and the American experiments is that my interest is in flowing information. Remember, I'm this, legal, this legally blind person you're talking to. I'm always interested in getting more information. So my pitch, my interest and the CIA's interest was how can we learn what's going on in distant places? And the Russian's interest is how can we affect somebody in a distant place? Can can we uh, embarrass an American leader while he's giving a talk? Can we confuse his mind at a distance? And the answer is probably yes. So
0: it's almost weaponization versus information technology in terms that's of right, the purposes. That's right.
2: Mm-hmm. And one, one thing that Uh, is is fascinating about this is the way in which the CIA began to take interest in your work. Uh, From from what we understand, there were experiments wherein uh, one or more people would learn specific information, uh, in, in one case, special access code names, uh, in a, another case, as you had mentioned, you know, submarines. Although they were already involved at that point, uh, when when did the CIA come to your group directly uh, with with regards with this? Did did they pitch you or
4: I went to the CIA? Okay, I, I had done laser stuff for the CIA in my earlier incarnation as a laser scientist. So I, I was I was prepared now. After my nice meeting with Von Braun and Jim Fletcher and the promise of Doe, I was prepared to play my other card and go to the CIA and say, can we get some uh, support for teaching people how to actually use this ability? And uh, Kit Green, who was the head of Life Science Division at that time, said, well, something we could do, how how about we give you – geographical coordinates, and you can describe what's there. And I'll give you coordinates of something that I don't know. So it's a double-blind experiment. And Pat Price, who is one of our great psychics, a retired police commissioner, Price said, it looks to me that these coordinates pertain to some kind of uh, military base. I see a microwave antenna, and they're big roll-up doors. And if I go in there a lot of activity at lower levels, the whole row of filing cabinets. And this place is called Rackup. And it's all the all the programs are named like Eight Ball and Q Ball and so forth. They all have uh billiard names and he wrote down a bunch of those. And I delivered those to Kit Green. That was our our pro that was our deliverable is the picture of this radar site, and the name of the programs.
0: A, a, p- a picture that he had drawn.
4: That, that Price had drawn. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't at all what Kit expected, because Kit then went to his buddy who gave him the coordinates, and it was a log cabin. But because Ingo Swan, another psychic at our lab, in fact, Swan is the one who taught us how to do remote viewing, Swann had drawn things very similar to Pat Price. And the reason that Kit Green wanted to pursue this is that both psychics drew the same thing. So he drove up toward the cabin that was the ostensible target. And 100 meters past the cabin, there was this military facility, which is called Sugar Grove, a highly classified national security agency listening post. But Kit, of course, has all the credentials so he could go anywhere And he went in there, drove around, saw what they had, talked to the management, said, do you know anything about these funny names that the psychic gave us? And all hell broke loose, because what Pat Price described were top secret code names of ongoing programs listening to Russian microwave transmissions. So the thing that we had penetrated accidentally was one of the most secret things in America, namely a NSA crypto listening post penetrated by two psychics in California. So that caused a major freakout at the National Security Agency. First of all, they were angry at Kit Green and complained to their management at CIA, why are you guys targeting our facility with a bunch of psychics? And Kit Green said it was an accident. They, they, they missed the log cabin and somehow zeroed in on your place. So we then had a meeting at SRI where the security people at NSA faced Pat Price and said, if you're so psychic, why did you look at our place if you were targeted at a log cabin? And he said, well, I was coming in at 50,000 feet, and I looked down, and I, of course, saw the log cabin, but I saw your huge spread of giant microwave dishes, and I assumed that that must be what they're after. So I landed there and walked around and described what I found. And he said, you've got to remember that the more attention you have on hiding something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. And that, of course, totally freaked out all these people overcome with security.
2: <laughs> that was going to be the question, yeah how How did they react did they Did they uh, immediately go into shock did they uh, Did they assume that someone had leaked the location from their side or how did they handle this?
4: The first thing they decided is there was a security leak. Except this is a, if there is almost worse for there to be a security leak than for for a psychic to look in. Because if you have a security leak where a top-secret program in the basement of the NSA is penetrated, then you've got a super major problem, even worse than ESP. And they decided that there was no leak. The NSA went away, and we promised not to look in on them anymore. And Kit Green at the uh, CIA then supported our program for many more years, and that's how we wound up looking at a Soviet weapons factory. We were targeted to look at a Soviet site, someplace in Siberia. And Pat, I was with, I, I'm was i always the in house person because I don't drive. So in all these experiments, I'm the one sitting with the dark, sitting in the dark with the psychic. And I'm saying, okay, Pat, we got a new target today. It's in Russia, no idea what's there. Uh, can you quiet your mind and tell me what what surprising things come into view? Which is my magic words to launch a ESP Pro target. And he said, well, I'm lying on a building in the sunshine, and the sun feels good on my body, says he. And there's this giant crane rolling back and forth over me. Huge crane. It's a gantry crane with four wheels on either side of the building rolling back and forth. This is such a me. I've got to draw this crane. And he drew the crane, and the next day we brought that to uh, Ken Crafts and Kit Crane, and they unrolled a photograph that they had, a top-secret uh, satellite photograph. And what Price drew was remarkably similar to the crane on the ground. They were shocked that he could he could out of his head replicate this thing that was already marked top secret. And of course, we had clearances to see this. I mean, part of the part of the evidence that our that ESP was real is that my partner and I had top secret clearances because the things we were describing were verified by satellite photography. So this was this was not game playing. We were uh, serious contenders. So Ken Chris said, well, uh, we we knew that, that that was there because we had, that's why we picked the site. What we want to know is what are they doing underground? What is this crane used? What are they building? And Price sat by, back and put in his glasses and said, well, they're making a giant steel sphere, about 60 feet in diameter, and they're building that out of, gores, like orange peel slices. They're welding it together but they're having a hard time welding it because the material is so thick that the material is warping as they try and weld it. And he drew a picture of the 60-foot gores, 60-foot orange peels, and then sketched a 60-foot sphere. Unfortunately, the CIA then hired him away from us, sort of captured him, and took him from sunny California to Virginia to be a contractor for the CIA. And Price mysteriously died four months later. But the CIA had no idea whether or not there were 60-foot spheres buried under the semi weapons factory. But two years later, the factory was opened up, and they rolled out two of these giant 60-foot spheres, exactly as Price drew them. And in the photographs that we show in the movie, you can see how they're put together with gores. And Aviation Week sent me those photographs. So Third Eye Spies, are in our movie, this is the first place anybody could ever actually see what these giant spheres look like. And Price was able to describe something that nobody in America, nobody in the CIA, knew anything about. That was because it was buried in a secret Russian site. ESP researchers worry about, did he look in the future and describe his feedback? And the answer is no, he did not do that because he was dead before anybody in the West, before he could get any feedback. place got no feedback for the crystal clear description of his spheres.
2: Mm-hmm. And we'll pause momentarily for a word from our sponsor.
5: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out. Where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right. Sofas from only $639.
2: Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada.
1: That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises.
2: Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then... You found yourself subscribed?
0: Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had, like, put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to, like, go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well,
1: that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider.
2: Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises and yada 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 helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the
0: most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide.
2: And we're back.
0: Now, one thing that I really enjoyed in the film uh, is the way you take a lot of these drawings and you overlay them over, I'm assuming, more modern aerial uh, photography of some of these locations. And sometimes they, they line up. In a very um, affecting way, like all, kind of creepy, for lack of a better term. My question, though, is at the time. This is just my ignorance about the technology of the time, but were, were there was there not that level of satellite photography available? Like how oh, it was
4: underground. I see. I see.
2: And this was the uh, mid seventies, right? For before... nineteen
4: seventy four. See the photograph. We we the CIA did have photographs of the big crane, but that was already a top secret photograph very, very closely held, and they had no idea what was in the building under the crane, what are they making. In fact, the reason for the exercise is, could the psychic describe the stuff on the surface at Semipalatinsk? And if he could do that, could they then reveal what was going on at this huge weapon factory?
2: And there's one question that kept popping into my mind while watching Third Eye Spies, uh, which was that on multiple occasions uh, people say that, they, that the program had support from various branches of the government or intelligence or, or the military, uh, but that the CIA seemed to be, um, for lack of a better word, they seemed to be the, the ones who were uh, pushing the brakes. In your experience— uh, and we totally understand if that's something that can't be said on air. What was it like working with the CIA? I mean, clearly the people in Third Eye Spies, like uh, Christopher Kit Green, uh, they they clearly uh, supported the project and believed in the science behind it. But overall, as an institution, what was the CIA like as a funding partner or research partner?
4: I was a co-founder in 1972, and I left in 1982 when it became totally classified and I could no longer publish anything. I grew up in public, my father was a distinguished New York publisher, so I grew up in the purpose of life was to write books and papers. So by 82, I could no longer publish anything, and I felt that my time in graduate school was not spent to be a psychic spy for the CIA, but rather to understand how our awareness could transcend space and time and tell people about it. But during my decade, uh, we worked with John McMahon, who was the Director of Intelligence at CIA, a very smart guy, trained as a lawyer, who was totally on board with what we were doing, and very supportive. So the CIA has given a lot of people a lot of problems and killed a lot of people, and written a reprehensible organization. But they let us do what we wanted to do. The deal we made with John McMahon, head of intelligence, is that we would spend half of our time trying to understand psychic abilities, and in that direction, we would publish our findings in Nature magazine, and the English distinguished journal. And in the proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers, which is which is the which would be my traditional journal as a laser guy, so we published a lengthy paper in the IEEE journal called "Information Transmission Under Conditions of Sensory Shielding." From their point of view, that looked like a microwave paper, no problem. And the information transmission just happened to be ESP, but. Uh, The CIA had a lot of closed minded people there, uh, but the guys we were working with were very supportive. Bob Gates became the the head of CIA, and he became the Secretary of Defense eventually. And toward 1995, he was on television saying that uh, the SRI program did not provide any information that was useful to anybody, and that was very shortly after the Army Group, I trained six Army Intelligence officers to create a Army psychic Corps in Maryland. So the the Army had been became embarrassed at having to come to SRI wherever they wanted to find something. So we had recently found a downed airplane that the CIA couldn't find. a Russian plane crashed in Africa. And the CIA couldn't find it because it was in the jungle, and the photography doesn't pre- penetrate the jungle, of course. So the CIA came to us and said, Can, do you think your psychic could find this airplane in northern Africa? And we worked with uh, Air Force Intelligence, who also had a psychic. And between us, we drew a little circle, three-mile diameter circle, between the river and the mountains to one side of a village, and the CIA launched their helicopter to our little circle, and as they landed in the circle, they could see natives dragging big hunks of metal from the river to the village, showing that they had already found the airplane. So so a California psychic led the CIA to find this airplane that they were unable to find by any other means, and our film, Third Eye Spies, opens up with Jimmy Carter talking about how during his presidency, the most remarkable thing he had experienced was the locating of a down Russian airplane by psychics in California.
0: And that's actually something that has an Atlanta connection too. Jimmy Carter, being a native Atlantan, he gave a commencement speech at Emory University. That's also featured in the film, where he, uh, I think, the members of the audience were able to submit questions, and somebody mentioned this programmer, this quote that he had mentioned that he had said, and he bringing that up at that point, which I believe was in the nineties, um, it, it, it caused 95, some. Yeah, that
4: helped blow our cover. It, it
0: caused some program. problems. Can you explain why? If that was already in the public record, him saying that, why was it such a big deal for him to say it? Then and like, was it? Did it create renewed interest when, at that point, it had become so classified? And it
4: wasn't in the it wasn't in the public record until Jimmy Carter said it. It was that the CIA knew that we had found it because we found it for them, and the um, remote viewing operators at Fort Meade knew about it as did we, but the public didn't know that there was a extensive ESP program going on until Jimmy Carter announced it. On television.
0: See, I was uh, mis—I I, I, I misunderstood that. I thought that he had said it previously because the footage in the film is more grainy and black and white. I thought it was like a comment that he had made a long time ago, but that's not the case. He made it uh, for the very first time in the '90s at that Emory commencement, and that's what blew your cover. Correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah.
2: So it's interesting that Robert Gates, of all people, was the one who who said that he didn't see some sort of significance because wasn't uh, wasn't he the same person who, as an analyst, received the information about the Russian sub and then called it a lucky guess, even though it was... That's wa- right. Yeah.
4: I mean, he, he he was on television lying his ass off, saying that we never said anything uh, worthwhile, didn't give them any information they didn't know. Joe McMonegal was targeted by the... Uh, Fort Mead organization that he worked with. He was one of the seven or eight psychic. I trained up Joe along with six other people. I wouldn't say that. I would never say on the air that I taught Joe how to be psychic. He he came to me psychic, but I just showed him the moves for how to do remote viewing and make use of this information, and he became a prodigious psychic practitioner at Fort Meade, and he was able to draw the sub, he was targeted on the building. There was a large building, quarter mile uh, inland from the North Sea. They knew a lot of activity was going there. And Joe said, well, it it was not a sub base. But Joe said, I see them building this huge submarine. They're building a sub twice as big as anything I've ever seen. It's more than 500 feet long. And twice the width of an ordinary sub, as though they've stuck two subs together side by side. So this is the biggest thing. It looks like a huge whale of a submarine. And they're going to launch it in three months. And they launched it in three months, and it was exactly what Joe described: this typhoon-class submarine. No one had seen. No one in the West had ever seen anything remotely like. This 550 foot submarine that Joe drew in detail three months before it was launched, and then and then Gates was on the Ted Koppel show saying that we never. I was with I was in the film. i it shows that I'm sitting with Joe, and he just says, uh, uh, "Gates is just lying. There's no other way to explain it because he knew about this, and what he said back to us it was just a lucky guess."
0: More with Russell Targ after we take a quick break to thank our sponsor.
5: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639.
2: Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with
5: nada, yada, yada.
1: That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises.
2: Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then... You found yourself subscribed?
0: Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying.
1: Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider.
2: Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most.
0: Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. And now we are back with more from Russell Tart. I have a question. So, um, when you when you talk about being able to train somebody to do this, and it sounds to me like almost a meditative process that is akin to astral projection, I guess, as it's known in in the you know parlance of our no, time. I yeah, I suppose so. Um, to me, this begs the question of you know the nature of science versus spirituality and the mind, and the brain versus the soul, etc. Um, and this is something that I think we've been dancing around a little bit in this conversation. But I would love to hear how you view those differences
4: we're still recovering from the enlightenment the big contribution of the enlightenment with descartes who was the author of the terrible mind brain schism he knew that there was survival after death but he absolutely wanted no part of science dealing with spirituality and the church didn't want scientists creeping around with the nature of the soul. There was a heresy for um, a person who was not in the clergy to start incur- inquiring about the nature of the soul. And science was just coming out from under the edge of spirituality with, with Newton's laws and Copernicus and hard-edged science. So the separation between science and spirituality really came at that point and became increasingly hard-edged. Now, these days you have people like Schrodinger saying uh, consciousness is a singular of which there's no plural. Consciousness uh, is, is everywhere. And Schrodinger said the most important discovery in quantum mechanics is entanglement. So quantum mechanics has really saved us from the schism created by Descartes. That is, It's now all of quantum mechanics, the so-called measurement problem that is also pioneered by Schrodinger and the famous cat problem. The cat is neither alive nor not alive until you look and see. That paradox was invented 2,000 years ago by a Buddhist Dharma master, Nargajuna, who said that most things are neither true nor not true. But that, that's outside of what we're saying now. But to answer your question, there had been a big schism between consciousness research and physics research, and that has mended itself largely now. Physics is very interested in the nature of consciousness. So... The, so Work that we're doing now might have been uh, schismatic fifty years ago, but it's quite out these days. That's fantastic news because this this
2: reminds me of something else to continue the thread of schisms of mending um and of learning and scholarship in general. It seems that in some conversations, uh, certain researchers, professors, uh, learned people and so on are concerned about publicly sharing their opinions on one sort of research or another publicly, uh, whether in audio interviews or in print. The crux of the question here is – where Where is that uh, hesitancy coming from? Are researchers perhaps intimidated? Do they think they may lose funding? Or if they're a professor, do they think they may lose their position at their um, at their institute of learning? Um, and, and if so, is this a, a well-founded fear? Is it genuine? Is it exaggerated? Uh, wh- where does this come from?
4: Well, what Planck said in about 1900, you're never going to convince the old folks— that quantum mechanics is true. You're just going to have to wait for them to d- die and the new people will discover that it's true. Um, in physics universities, people are still, by and large, don't want to get tarred with the ESP brush. It, that is, the, old, the older faculty is going to tease or laugh at younger people who are interested in ESP because it's still, still not permitted but uh, for people working in quantum mechanics, the idea of consciousness research uh, is is quite appropriate. You, you, could, you could go to, I'm making this up now, but I, I guarantee that if you went to the internet and looked for consciousness and quantum mechanics, you would find hundreds of papers. It's a hot topic at the edges of quantum mechanics because you have the nature, you have the the whole nature of consciousness is uh, up for grabs. There's, see, consciousness is efficacious. That's the that's the thing that uh, people don't realize is that they want to know is consciousness material or not material. So we, I would say that consciousness is neither material nor not material. It's a, it's a bad question because we know that the thoughts of one person can affect the physiology of a distant person. One of the most replicated experiments in all of ESP research is called distant mental influence on living persons, on living things. So you can see somebody's sitting in a distant laboratory and on a random schedule you're supposed to excite them or put them to sleep and then you can look at a later time and their brain waves or heart rate will show that when I was trying to excite them, they became excited, even though they might have been 50 meters away. So the fact that, so consciousness is able to do stuff. So that gives a kind of physical reality to consciousness, because it's efficacious. It's not it's not an epiphenomena. Is my consciousness is able to move the dial. So, you go, so my consciousness demands cognizant as a, as a real thing and, and not an epiphenomena. But we've, we've come... See, a, The film is about the true story of CIA psychic spying. So we've come quite a, a way that is, I, I'm sort of an unreconstructed logical positivist. I grew up doing experiments where I could lay the experiment next to the theory and say, here's what's supposed to happen. Here's what did happen. Do we know what's going on? So I really believe in good experiments stronger than good theory. And I say, why did I why what makes you believe in ESP, Tark? And I say, Well, 1984, after I left SRI, I started a group called Delphi Associates forecasting change in the silver market. And by the time we got set up with a broker and an investor, we thought that we understood how to do that. At the end of 84, we made nine adventures into the silver market to determine whether the silver goes up a little or goes up a lot, down a little or down a lot. And all nine of our forecasts were correct, spot on. It made $120,000. And in 1984, that was a lot of money. And we we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Talking about uh, the psychic firm corner of the silver market, so uh, doing anything nine times in a row in life is remarkable, and doing it in a four choice game up a little up a lot down a little down a lot is close to odds of one in a hundred thousand
2: and that's something people were listening to because uh, as as you show in the film um there have been people from institutes around the world or countries around the world who have traveled to attempt to learn these techniques. Specifically, uh, some Russian, some some Russian individuals and groups, and this this leads us to uh, maybe one of the biggest questions that people have listening to this, uh, or biggest series of related questions: uh, Why aren't there? publicly working government assets doing this in the field today? And also, uh, do you believe that there may still be some, somewhere out there government-funded research occurring along these lines, maybe not in the public sphere anymore, maybe it went underground, or maybe they stopped? Uh, what, what's your take on this?
4: Well, in the film, and Third Eye Spies, we have Kit Green on camera saying that, the best of his knowledge, there is still a underground program at the CIA with people doing remote viewing. For example, why wouldn't there be? The, the last effort that Pat Price did at CIA was looking into the code room in the Libyan embassy, and he was able to penetrate that embassy, find the code room, enter it, and describe it to the satisfaction of the CIA, who had once been there before. And I had trained up two CIA operatives who came to us to see people were always checking up on us to make sure there's no loophole in what we're doing. So we had a man who was mainly a lock picker and a woman who was a mechanical engineer both high-level CIA operators who came to our lab, wanted to see how we're doing experiments, and then they wanted to do it themselves. So we had to make sure that our protocol was as tight and secure as possible, and both of them did highly successful remote viewings of of distant places. That is, we we would lock them into our room and then tape the door shut, because we didn't trust them either, then Hal and I would go to some random place, and both of them were able to give exquisite, accurate descriptions of where we were hiding. And Kit Green said that in Pat Price's last days at SRI, he was working with these two highly trained CIA operatives doing remote viewing at the CIA. He said, according to his conversation with the director of intelligence right now, and the film is made... Uh, that he believed that there's still uh, remote viewing going on in the basement of the CIA. And, and, and why wouldn't there be?
2: Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, for for all of us, especially for you and I, Noel... Oh, man,
0: we had like 50 questions here. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> podcasting technically is an infinite medium, but we, tr- we do try to keep it a little bit tight mm-hmm.
4: if possible. Well, you can find the film at all digital platforms starting 9 o'clock tonight.
2: That's perfect. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, and we highly recommend the film. Mm. Both Ben and I watched it. It uh, is—I plan on watching it again immediately. Mm. There's so much stuff in there that we did not cover, which is a good thing. So go see the film. You will find out a world of information about this uh, this, this entire kind of clandestine universe of uh, psychic spies.
2: Yes. Russell Targ, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Russell Targ, folks, American physicist, parapsychologist, and author— world-renowned pioneer in the field of remote viewing. And that's not, that's not our opinion. No. That's the opinion of the CIA. Very much so,
0: <laughs> who, again, are very hard to please. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today for the show.
4: Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm happy to chat with you.
2: So we did not get to a significant amount of the stuff that we wanted to uh, explore with Russell Targ today. But I have to say, what a delightful conversation. What a fascinating story.
0: It was absolutely fascinating and uh, just a delightful human being to talk to. It's such an interesting combination of uh, love for the metaphysical and the physical and his – separation of the mind and brain and soul, all of that just really hit home for me. And he was so uh, generous with his time that even after we wrapped the interview, there were topics we wanted to explore more. And he was just like, yeah, just call me. I'll come back. So, look for that.
2: Yeah, so look for him to return. In the meantime, we don't have questions just for Russell Targ. Of course not. If you know this show well enough, you know that we always end with questions for you. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to in our initial conversation, uh, but we want to know what related topics you believe we should explore in the future. We'd also like to hear your take on this. Do you think ESP, Remote Viewing, Clairvoyance, Call it what you wish. Do you think there is some sand to it? And regardless of where you fall in the debate, what do you think the future of this research holds? I'm also very interested to see for any of us listening who live in the ivory towers of academia, have you ever felt that you were intimidated or bullied away from conducting a particular type of research? And if so, what?
0: And I had a question for you, Ben, uh, off air. Was how is this different from some of the cold reading techniques that we associate with mentalists and uh, hypnotists that would be um, doing more of a parlor trick rather than something like this that seems to really have some scientific sand behind it? And you had a really good answer for yeah, that.
2: Yeah. So there are so there are two different types of ways that someone who's perpetrating a fraud or a hoax would convince their mark that they had psychic powers. One way is called cold reading. Cold reading is when you're fishing for things. That's when you hear someone like, uh, what was that guy a few years ago? John Edwards, you say could speak with a dad. Pickup artist. Oh no, no no
0: different. Yes, exactly. And he mm-hmm. would
2: say he would say stuff like, uh, okay, I'm I'm feeling out in the crowd. Something with a J a Jeremy, a John, a J-John, a John-J, and they would, they would go around like that until someone says, yes, I know someone, Jeremy, and then say, okay, they're, I think they're, uh, they like colors, right? They had a, They had a favorite color, and then they'll say, their favorite color was blue, and they're like, yes, that's right, blue. That's cold reading. The second kind is hot reading. Hot reading is when you straight up do research beforehand. You Google our pal Matt Frederick. You learn about his life, and then when you meet him, you pretend that you are getting a psychic impression. This would be a little different. The way that they're explaining the the coordinate sending or remote sensing uh, is such that the person who is the interviewer, the role Russell Targ was playing, was, uh, was legitimate on his part because he did not have knowledge of where his associate was taking people. They had no predetermined understanding of what that location would be. So if he didn't know, he could not cold read or lead the, the person attempting to remote view. But that all depends on whether or not they had that information. It doesn't sound like they did.
0: Does not, and uh, it's something that I meant to ask, but we just had so much stuff to cover that uh, it slipped my mind, but I think that's a really good explanation. Who
2: killed it. Pat Price,
0: Well, exactly. Again, subject for another day. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so on our Facebook group, Here's Where It Gets Crazy, where you can post questions, and I think we're going to start doing a thing where we start like a thread uh, for each episode or even let people know in advance what the next episode is going to be. We've talked about doing that.
2: Yep, the episode thread should be out right now, so uh, go join our favorite podcast. Part of the show, your fellow listeners. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. You can find our show on Instagram. where Conspiracy Stuff Show. You can also find me personally. I just had some weird adventures with a snake. I'm at Ben Bolin on Instagram. And
0: I am at Embryonic Insider on Instagram. And if you want to call and leave us a voicemail, try to keep it to three minutes if you can. Otherwise, you'll be asked to leave a second voicemail. But you can do that at one eight three three S 833
2: stdwitk
0: it's like we're doing an incantation of some kind when we do that. I like it.
2: And if none of that quite bagged your badgers, you can reach us directly via an old-fashioned email. We are
0: conspiracy at HowStuffWorks.com